Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Dr. Thomas Prosser, a reader in European social policy at Cardiff University. He is interested in social democracy, economic and cultural values, and implications for change in liberal democracies. He has written over 15 articles and two books, including What's in it for me, Self-Interest and Political Difference. I welcome Thomas Prosser to Savage Minds. Your book is most poignant given today's cultural, social, and political climate, if you catch my drift, right? Our audience is pretty much around the world at this point, and we have people who've been following the political issues of the day related to not only partisan politics, given the recent elections, both in the UK and the US, but also the idea that identity seems to matter more today then anything else, housing, social welfare, education, student loan debt. I mean, the list is long, but somehow how you see me seems to have the number one media coverage, importance of, of speak within political circles and other platforms, including academia. Can you talk to us about what your book says and what it answers to in terms of this cultural trend? Yeah, uh, of course, over the last few years, um, political debate has got really bitter, which I think is very unfortunate. And that's one of the reasons why I I wrote this book. In, I'm, I'm British and I, I live in Britain. And of course, we had Brexit. And uh, one of the problems with Brexit was that uh, really very crude language was, was thrown about about um, opponents and about their motivations. Um, and I think with the book, what I, what, what I tried to do was really to show that people's, um, people's political positions are, are embedded, really. Uh, they tend to reflect um, factors like economic factors, um, cultural factors. So it's consequently um, very difficult uh, to, to, to say to someone, oh, oh you're, you're stupid or you're, you're selfish. Uh, and paradoxically, I, I think that recognising that, that we are self-interested and our opponents are, are legitimately self-interested, it, it tends to take the heat out of debate. But because once you, you recognise that this is a a debate about different interests. Um, it, it becomes um, more about, okay, we've got different interests, now how are we going to reconcile them? Um, now, of course, you can look at interests um, in two basic ways, I'd say. First of all, you, you can look at them from the point of view of economics, uh, which is a traditional way in Western politics. Um, and, uh, well, uh, Western politics has traditionally been, been predicated on, on debates about how resources should be best distributed. Uh, and of course, um, debates about redistribution can still be very bitter um, in the United Kingdom. Um, there's been quite a lot of bitter debate against, um, or polemic against the Conservative Party, for example, um, people saying that, that, that the, the, the conservatives are, 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 are selfish or evil or whatever. In, in the book, I try and show that such a position is problematic. Um, I think 
what is is very interesting in the last few years, however, is how the culture has become more salient, uh, as, as you mentioned. Um, yeah, politics is primarily about culture now. Um, but you know, the, the very interesting thing, again, though, is if you look at culture, uh, it actually can be taken back to, to the issue of self-interest. Um, Brexiters, for example, or, or supporters of, of Donald Trump um, are, are culturally conservative. Um, and the, the, the roots of cultural conservatism are, are in the desire to achieve closure. So it's all about feeling more secure um, in a threatening world. Uh, no, I, I'm, I, did, I didn't support uh, Brexit myself. I don't support. It. I, I certainly don't support Donald Trump. But but I, I I do think that we should better understand people like that. What what are their motivations? They're not um, merely stupid or, or evil or whatever. They they have legitimate legitimately different interests. And I think if if people really uh, reflect and recognise what the interests are, politics would be healthier. And I myself voted to remain. But I have to confess, after the votes were counted, I was in London at the time, I was a bit shocked by the way the people on our side who voted to remain reacted. And as you remember, that was sold to us all as a referendum. It's a temperature taking. It wasn't, it was a consultatory vote, remember? Yeah. And suddenly it went from consultatory to we'll go with this. This is what you guys said. I felt hesitant about the whole thing because of the way it was presented. That said, after the votes were counted and our side lost, I was not impressed by the fighting over the vote because then I thought, wait, <laughs> aren't we supposed to take our lumps as well? And, you know, maybe work on something else instead of uh, arguing about why we lost? I don't know. I totally agree. Um, I was an activist um, for Remain. Um, I, I, I was, was, you know, very passionate about remaining in the European Union, but I agree once once we, we lost, we should have accepted the result. Um, and, and unfortunately, um, that, that didn't happen. I think it's related to the fact that lots of Remainers um, live lives which, which, which really aren't, um, in, in, in which they, they, they really don't, don't speak with, with the kind of people who voted Brexit. So it, it's a big problem. One thing I bought into initially was the idea that people because as you can tell from my accent, I, I'm not British, but because of being Canadian, I could vote and being a resident, mm -hmm. I could vote. So I keyed into some of the left-wing press that said, you know, people who were Brexiters were more racist, et cetera. And I regret buying into that because I think there was a lot in common between the right-wing interests for leaving and the left as well. That said, when you start to look at, for instance, the book you've written and what does self-interest say about the way we vote in the sense of, I don't think most of the Brexiteers were really racist, fascists or xenophobes. I also don't think that the people voting Remain were necessarily less racist, etc. Now, what fed into that vote primarily, do you think, in terms of 
social conservatism, uh, self-interest, and the debates that that provoke. Because as you know, if you're on the left, I mean, <laughs> this is rather shocking to me that leftists tend to look at conservatives and they're like, oh, he's a Tory, and they just write it off as if there's no dialogue to be held. And I don't think that's necessarily what the left should be doing in terms of making political debate. No, I, I totally agree with you. I think with Brexit, I think that surveys, survey evidence, like, like the British election study shows that, that Brexit voters um, tended to have more, more xenophobic views than Remainers. But of course, you're, you're talking about a minority. I certainly wouldn't say, uh, I, I never have said that the majority of, of Brexit um, voters are, are racist or anything. I agree with you. you you've got to try and understand um, their, their concerns, uh, to, to see their concerns as legitimate. And, and I agree with you that um, I, there's a big problem on the left with really appreciating the, the foundations of cultural conservatism, I, I, I would say. Um, you know, um, it, it's really quite normal. Uh, cultural conservatism is, is a, a, a basic uh, human um, 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 position, I would say. You know, what one finds um, fear of change uh, across societies. It, it, it's a basic um, observation of anthropologists. Um, and, and in fact, um, left-wingers are very good when, when they encounter um, cultural conservatism in non-Western societies, they're very good at sympathising with it and saying, aha, but you know, th this is why, why it exists here, its origins and its functions and trajectories, but they're very bad at doing that when they encounter um, it in, in Western societies. So, so I, I agree with you that um, it, it's really quite um, puzzling why, why the, the Western left hasn't got a a more sophisticated view of, of cultural conservatism, particularly among the, the less educated, because for, for the less educated, it clearly provide it, it clearly fulfills important functions. I've noticed within the UK, especially when I first moved there, I would hear comments from people on the left saying, oh, he's religious or he's a Catholic. And I was thinking, why has that become the criticism instead of dealing issue by issue? not in terms of a kind of anti-morality as that person believed, I think. Instead of that, what happened to debating points, politics, policies, proposed legislation? Because what I've witnessed over the past 20 years, definitely since this millennia has hit and probably was brewing in the decade or so before, was partisan politics began to dig in in terms of virtue, the left especially, and I'm sure you remember the 80s with, in the US, the likes of the moral majority, Jesse Helms in the throes of Reaganism. The right was the party or the political valence that was hammering away about what is good and what is bad about society and why we shouldn't be listening to these kinds of lyrics and songs. And, and why this art shouldn't be shown. We saw a tad bit of that in George Bush II with uh, his, one of his inner circle putting covers over statues that were naked, right? So we didn't have to see private parts. But the moral majority was not a majority 
it was moral, but it was a tiny minority within the conservative party, a very tiny uh, group of people. Turn to today, and we see wokeism all over the left, such that saying that, oh, I'm not talking with you. You're a Catholic. I'm not talking with you. You're not pro-choice. Hey, you voted for Theresa May. I'm not talking to you. You see, everything comes down to this kind of test of how you have to rise up to my level to be dignifying of a conversation with me, which is very bizarre to me. <laughs> because I would think that political and yeah. cultural discussions need to put away the moralizing because it seems that the left has replaced what was once the church which, with its own set of moral rules that have very much to do. And I'm saying this as a leftist myself. I find myself at days feeling yeah. without political partisans because so much of the left is caught up in, as you know, pronouns and why didn't you say BLM? Why didn't you say that? You know, where everything becomes this kind of saturated doxa that we have to recite to let others know that I'm not racist, I'm not xenophobic. At the same time, Thomas, what's striking to me when you start to look at immigrant policies on both sides of the aisle in a country like the United States, you'll notice that the Democrats don't fare much better because what it turns out is that everyone wants to have their very cheap nanny from Jamaica or Mexico or Guatemala. They want to have their very cheap labor. And so having immigration policies isn't necessarily a sign of being pro-immigrant any more than it's being a sign of, I like to keep my expenses down. So that's the self-interest that I'm curious about in terms of how people vote how we react discursively within political discussions. What did your research say to this in terms of how we build social democracy in terms of what we say and then what we actually do? Like who is paying their nanny a proper living wage? I think, yeah, moving back to, to the, fir the first point you made about um, people being more judgmental, um, I, I agree that that's a case. Um, and I, I also agree that, that unfortunately, it, it does tend to be um, more of a left-wing thing. Um, I, I think what, what the, the, you know, the big problem I have with this um, is that generally in the last few decades, um, the, the big trend in academic findings has been that, that human agency is, is really um, quite limited. You know, we, we are the the product of our environment, of our, our genes, um, of, our, of our culture, our, our brains are, are, are telling us to do all sorts of things. And so, you know, for me, it, it doesn't really, um, of course, I, I'm not a relativist, I, I have strong moral standards, but at the same time, I think you've got to really try and see where people are coming from. Um, I, I'm not not religious myself, but but I don't doubt that if I'd been in, born into a devout Catholic family or a devout Muslim family or or Sikh family or what whatever, that, that I, I would be religious. And I, I think that therefore you've got to see um, uh, worldviews that don't correspond with, with, with yours from a more, you know, empathetic point of view and and, and think that that um, that that this person is a product of, of, of their environment and various other factors. So I, 
I totally agree with you um, that such, such a judgmental attitude is a is a, is a bit of a dead end for the left. Um, I'm not sure. Um, I, I think there, there is a debate to be had over the extent of this because survey evidence shows that um, very many people um, on the left are still are very, very open-minded and very many people on the right are close-minded. Um, I, I think though that um, what the, the effect you see on social media is very notable um, where, and unfortunately, um, a, a group of activists are, are able to dictate um, the, the, the nature of debate. Um, and coming back to, to the point you, you made about immigration, which was, was very interesting as well, um, where, where you talked about how, um, how the, the left's discourse on immigration was uh, related to the, the, the fact that, that um, immigration was a source of cheap labor. Uh, yes, I think that's very relevant. And I talk about that in the book. I think you have to see um, possible developmental paths for, for, for liberal ideas. Um, liberalism uh, as, as a, an ideology has always been pretty poor um, at advocating redistribution. That's because it tends to be a worldview which is supported by, by, by wealthier and educated people. And, and so, um, and, and, and so, so consequently, you, you, you don't see or you tend not to see uh, liberals advocating very large transfers of wealth. Um, those aspects of liberal programs do exist, but they tend not to be very salient. And, and so consequently, um, there, there are many um, paths among on, on, on which liberalism could develop. But I think that something like immigration um, is really, it, it, it plays very much to the, the profile of liberal supporters, but because on the one hand, it emphasizes freedom and openness, um, but on the other hand, it, it doesn't really disrupt um, economic relations. And, and so it, yes, it, it, it attracts to liberals. And I, I agree that there's a there's um, an unfortunate moralistic element to liberal discourse on this. Um, I, um, you know, um, less educated people uh, tend to advocate less immigration. That, that That's a, a valid position. Um, it's consistent with their interests, I think. And I think the challenge for public policy is to try and find a, a compromise. And what does that kind of compromise, what would that look like, given that I'll give you an example. Many people who call themselves leftists are not. I'm sure you've noticed this, especially over the past year with lockdown. I'm a leftist, but what they're espousing is neoliberalism. And especially Americans are guilty of this because they, the way we use liberal is twofold. I guess there's an, a more erudite use of it, which would correspond to the British use. But many Americans use the word liberal to mean leftist. Now, I use liberalism in the textbook sense, where people are upset about lockdown, how are we going to eat, and the poor homeless people. But of the many people making these claims, expressing these worries, many are landlords themselves, and they're not telling their renters, 
you don't need to pay rent until you get back on your feet. That's not happening. We're not seeing that. So what would self-interest look like if it would be applied unilaterally to politics? I guess I'll ask that in the inverse way. We're seeing that people's self-interest seems to take precedence to their words. I mean, it's very easy to say, oh, the homeless, that's so sad. It's another thing to take action and say, I own two rental properties. I'm living well. Uh, we're all suffering in this. I'll tell my renters not to pay rent. We're not seeing that, Thomas. What's keeping people who call themselves leftists, even if they are neoliberal leftists, a lot of the neoliberal leftists do believe that homelessness is, is wrong, but they don't see the connection between their political ideals and their actions. I think that, yeah, the, the phenomenon of, um, of, of progressives um, who, um, who earn a lot of money for, for, from, from their job or, 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 or property or whatever is very interesting. And it shows really that people can't resist um, incentive structures. Um, and, and I think it would be better if people were more uh, self-aware on that. Um, it, it's very human to, to you know, to um, to to make the most of all the resources which are available to you. Um, I think the point about left wingers and redistribution, or um, I think if if you look at the liberal left as a a whole, um, and you you look at survey evidence on on the preferences of of liberals. Um, people, or, 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 well, let's call them cultural liberals, to be more precise. Um, cultural liberals um, in the West, um, particularly in Britain and America, I think they tend to advocate redistribution. Surveys show that. Um, uh, but but the the interesting thing is, um, as, as, as you're observing, um, it's one thing to advocate redistribution. Um, it's quite another thing to, to you know to, to, to give rent discounts or to give 20% of your, your your income to charity uh, and, and of course that that isn't um, that that isn't practice I think that the wider the, the most important way that this feeds into um, left-wing programs is in terms of salience um, if you look at the um, at, 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 at the contemporary liberal left, uh, of, of course, you you have a uh, a, a movement that, that is is on um, on on, on papers is committed to redistribution. But but those aspects um, of the program tend not to be very salient. They don't really come to the the fore in the same way that, that concerns about. Um, Freedom of movement or or, or uh, equality come to the fore, um, and that that means that that um, th th those those concerns don't really find themselves in their way into policy programs to the same extent. Um, and it, yes, it's, it's a very big problem for um, left liberals, I, I think, be, be because um, uh, as I write in the book, actually. Um, if your movement um, is is composed of wealthier people, as 
less liberal parties tend to be in the West, um, it, it's going to be quite tricky to achieve redistribution. Um, it'd be because um, people tend not to like redistributing wealth away from themselves. Um, <laughs> and there, there's a, 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 a quite a developing literature on this. I'm actually working on this at the moment, which, which shows problems associated with it. Um, there are issues associated with, with the, 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 the kind of social policy preferences that um, more affluent liberals have on things like student loans, for example, or um, act, active labour market policies, which tend not to um, be redistributive. Um, so, so the, yes, there, there are several problems there for, for, the, for the liberal left, yes. How can we understand what people's true political essence is really when we know that so many people will say i'm against poverty and homelessness people shouldn't be living on the streets and saddling kids with student loan debt is is really not helpful to our society how do we know who means those words and then who 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 doesn't in the sense of my example from before i mean I guess I think, and I saw this during lockdown severely because I was working on various articles, talking to people who were unable to pay rent, who were afraid to not pay rent or that if they didn't, they would be kicked out and homeless. So where we have a left, even the neoliberal left that claims to be against this, but then as you know, people tend to be against resources moving away from them. Now, is it that the true left or the very far left is in favor of this? Because I'm not seeing policies coming from that side of the political aisle, that very far left side of the political aisle that speaks to this. We saw this with the demise of Corbyn. He had great ideals in so many ways, but when it was time to put the pedal to the metal, he was more interested in people's pronouns, which alienated large swathes of people within labor. So focusing on identitarianism seems to me to be a cheap way out of political discussion. It's very easy for me as a politician to worry about how you see yourself and to call you by your pronoun over the hard work that it takes to restructure student loans, to give more student grants where there's no loan attached to it, to increase, let's say, the proportion of full-time professorial cadre, because as you know, the way the UK is heading is looking more and more like the adjunct lectureships that are plaguing the United States, where you have professors in universities who are teaching one course a semester and then working at McDonald's. True story. So how is it that the left can get away with saying all these nice sweet things. And on the other side, they demonize the right for doing often what they do. Yeah, this is where I've been having some very interesting discussions with people on the right, more recently Helen Dale. And I appreciate the fact that the right seems to listen to us even if they don't agree. They read our side of the aisle. They read the articles that we'll read. They'll read the Independent and the Guardian, maybe not you know, back to back on each article, but they are aware of what our issues are. And I can't say the left does it very well. When the left talks about the right, again, 
they're Nazis, they're xenophobes, they're related somehow to Tommy Robinson. And in the hyperbole outweighs the reasonable speech. Like, I would like to have a discussion with people on the right to talk about issues. And I find that that happens and we can discuss them, but then hop over to the left. And if you're not screaming Nazi racist at someone, then somehow you're not doing left right. Where did the left get into this habit of resorting to, it's not only ad hominem, but trying to, in a way, derail good discussion about true disagreement of, of real issues to this kind of straw man argumentation, let's call it. I think that, that what you were, you were saying about the, 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 the left's um, emphasis on identitarian issues is that, that's very interesting because actually that, that has um, an implication for, for the ability of the left to redistribute resources. Um, historically, um, the, the left, um, it, its support base uh, is comprised of lower income deciles um, and, and because uh, such voters vote to the left, it's meant that, that it's been easier for the left to redistribute because, because they're merely answering to the demands of their supporters. Um, and, but the problem, of, of course, is that uh, lower income deciles tend not to like um, the, the, the very culturally liberal polit politics. So, um, so uh, if you have very liberal issues, uh, very liberal stances on um, issues like like race or, or gender or or Im immigration, you, your your problem is is that you lose um, lower income vote lower income voters, and the sort of the left umbilical um, traditional way of redistributing resources becomes weaker, but because now they they've got more affluent um, voters, and you you've seen that it's been a very long term thing across the, the West. It, it's, it's taken place since perhaps the 1980s, so it's, it's taken place for decades. Um, but yes, it, it really is um, as a serious problem for the, the left. Um, and of course, we have all sorts of, of discussions um, in, in Britain, but, but in, in, in other Western countries about how the, the, the left can, um, can, can appeal to to working classes again, or to more of the working classes, because the, the left has has plenty of working class voters still. But but the problem is is that that, that the, their proportion has has been declining for for many decades. Um, I think the, the there's often lots of ideas are suggested. I think the problem that such ideas face so is that these trends are structural ones. They've been going on for 40 years or so. They, they are happening across countries. So it's not the fault of any in, individual or wing of a political party. Um, and I, I think that, that what there's re research was published a few years ago, actually, in, in one of the the prominent journals, which showed that um, poorer people were more naturally drawn to cultural, culturally conservative and economically redistributive politics, so right-wing right culturally, left-wing economically, 
Um, and I, I, I think so, so that, that, that's quite natural um, for the, the, these voters. And, and, the, and the problem that the left has um, is that the, the, the culturally liberal policies really, really don't appeal to them. Um, and it, it's very, very difficult for for the, the Labour Party in Britain, for example, to unite the disparate part of its electoral coalition, because I think it, it's inter- the, the interests of the distinct parts of the coalition are, are, are too different. You point this out in your first chapter where you talk about, you write, I'm going to quote you, left-wing and national populist movements provide examples in the case of the left, there is a long-standing focus on Israel related to anti-colonial history of the movement. It can be difficult to understand the attention which middle-class students lavish on the cause, yet this is a core belief of a movement which supports the economic aspirations of this group. What struck me about that is, is many things. There's a thread running through a lot of the identity politics, and that is class. It's a, a lot of the... BLM and well other movements uh, to do with race, anti-racism, uh, anti-xenophobia, and gender identity, etc., come from an often middle, middle upper upper class cadre of students. And then on the other hand, you note the national populist preoccupation with the EU and you know UKIP and so forth. So we have both sides dealing with economic turndown on the one hand, whether or not they're going to belong or not belong in Europe, and the not belonging is tied to other issues of nationalism, which can at times be quite xenophobic. And then on the other side of that aisle, you have an overwhelming support of identitarianism, a preoccupation with colonialism, which I would even translate to a preoccupation to the past. And it seems that all eyes are on these totems of history, of meaning, and and everyone's essence is invested in creating meaning from that historical moment, from the, the affirmation that we're part of Europe. Like, again, I voted to remain, but I have to tell you, I did not understand it when even friends would say, I want to be part of Europe. And I'm thinking, I don't actually understand what that means in terms of as an American, you, you learn that Europe is a continent and obviously Great Britain are isles. And what does that mean to be attached to the, uh, would it be the European Commission, the European economic system in which the UK has also opted out? So where does this belonging begin and end? Because I missed a large French currency. It's wonderful. It felt magical. So there's this kind of abyss between the belief in who we are at the moment and then who we once were and who we want to be. And I feel like there's a lot of identitarianism happening around the Brexit and Remain debate, even now, where the left isn't letting go of that. And I ask myself and I ask these people, what does that mean to be part of Europe, really? Yeah, um, in in the book, I I talk a lot about a theory called historical institutionalism, which uh, it, it's basic, um, uh, uh, basically says history matters, and what what history does is it sets up um, particular paths upon which 
um, different uh, countries and, and, and worldviews uh, de- develop. And, and as, as I say in the book, um, in, in the case of, of the left, there's a, um, a, a long-standing preoccupation with anti-colonial movements, and you, you see that um, uh, today. It, it, it's because it, it's been a, such a historic um, preoccupation of, of the left that that um, activists today find um, meaning in 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 the various struggles, um, because that, that that's how how the, the left has represented itself and how it's um, in, in, in invested uh, in terms of allies and and resources over over the decades, and it's the same. Um, of, of course, with the European issue, um, certainly on, on the Brexit supporting right, uh, there's a long-standing preoccupation with the issue of British independence, and one can take that back as far as, as Henry VIII and the Reformation. Um, it, it goes on um, through uh, in, in, in various guises throughout the, throughout the centuries. And of course, um, People in 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 a, in a post-industrial area like Stoke on Trent, um, the the immediate um, triggers of their preference to, to leave the the European Union might might have been um, economic or or it, it it might have been related to immigration. But one of the sort of the outlets for such frustration is in Euroscepticism, but because in in Britain, as I was saying, we have a a big tradition of of Euroscepticism on the right. Um, I think with the um, with liberal Remainers, um, I think that prior to the referendum, um, there, there wasn't really that strong a tradition of quite passionate Europhilia in 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 Britain. Um, yeah, but but very very interestingly, actually, since two thousand and sixteen, we've seen. Um, uh, many people, well, not many people, but a, a significant minority of people uh, on, on, on the liberal left have really become very committed to, to the European Union. And of course, they were the driving force behind the, the, the calls for, for a second referendum. Um, so even if that perhaps didn't have that much of a historical precedent um, moving forward, it, it may be that... Uh, that that uh, that Europhilia has a more important part role on on the on the British left. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now back to our show. In your book, you discuss, in fact, the way that political opponents are antithetical to the common good. You cite Hannah Arendt and Karl Popper. Yeah. You also state that theories of liberal democracy have been based on the notion that interests of citizens are legitimate. So in the public sector, who gets the debate and who gets to deliberate their grievances as a common good would necessarily depend on who has the time, the, the money to do so. We see this on, on the internet all the time. You see people who are clearly trolls with way too much time on their hand. 
Meanwhile, their voices are heard the most. The way that many people use the internet, on the other hand, those who are working three and four jobs means that they're lucky if they get to use it on the weekends at all. So when we have political disagreements today, be it in person, but more commonly now, over the past decade, especially on the internet, social media, we see that political opponents are treated very much in this way. You write that, you know, Arendt, Arendt and Popper argued that the authoritarian sees no humanity in political opponents. So how do we make debate with our political opponents in an era where they are being pushed because of these platforms as well and the way we can block and make hermetically sealed bubbles where if you disagree with me, Thomas, I'm going to mute you. You won't know I've muted you, by the way, mm -hmm. but you can go on and on and you're going to go crazy wondering why hasn't she answered me, right? But this is what we're seeing on Twitter where even people I agree with pull this. There's a, a way of sealing yourself off from anyone who disagrees with you. Another tactic that people use on Twitter, which I find very funny, is they say, <laughs> it reminds me of a film called Evil Under the Sun with Maggie Smith, where there's the, the diva who enters the room and Maggie Smith says, darling, you must be tired after waiting in your room all this time, pointing out that this person has gone out of their way to be dramatic. But people are pulling this stunt on Twitter saying, I've been attacked, so I'm going to unplug for a while. Goodbye. And they give their virtual kisses and they come back two days later as if they've, they've taken off to the mountains of Tibet for five years. But this is also mm -hmm. another tactic, which I find quite amusing because this is both a way of fake leaving Twitter because they're leaving for no more than a few days. And then they come back and people are like, how are you? You know, <laughs> so political debate has become more emotionalized because of platforms like Twitter and Facebook and even newer platforms. But those are the two primary platforms. And we're seeing a lot of emotional investment in not only what we say, but how it's being said, such that I can say, oh, Thomas, he really wore me out. I'm going to have to take a break from here. You know, I've had so many people disagree with me today. Of course, it's never couched as that. It's couched as I've been attacked. I've been demonized. I've been misrepresented. And sometimes that does happen. If we're going to have debates with people, we need to sort of recognize that it's important to have the debate. Like we can't just keep creating straw men arguments to get out of it or using the tools on these social media platforms to block debate. Yet, as you see, very few people are having debate today across the aisles because it's a much more cozy environment to be on the virtual lovey-huggy platforms that allow you to just say, you're so brave, Thomas, you're so brave, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, I, I think it, it's a major problem. Uh, of course, um, we we can overstate the, the importance of, so, of social media, but, it, but it's nonetheless um, still an extremely important platform. And I, I, I think the what, what you were saying about the, the the type of people who are attracted to social media. Um, it it's obviously um, a certain type of person um, it, get gets attention on on the, on those platforms. Um, I think there's been research which which shows that it, it tends to attract um, 
people who are angry or, or, or people are more likely to post and they feel angry. Um, and, and of course, the, the, the issue is, is that it sets a tone for debate very often. Of course, it sets a tone for debate on, on Twitter or whatever, whatever. but increasingly um, it sets the, the tone for debate um, on in the traditional media. Um, and, and the problem I, I, I think I, I, I have is that traditionally um, liberal in institutions in liberal democracies are, are, are really based on what, what, what I would call um, considered um, re- reflective dialogue um, where various points of views um, are um, are uh, reflected upon a, a, a consensus position or um, a, a more reasoned position um, comes to dominate. You know, if you you look at the traditional ways in which newspaper um, editorials have been written, uh, it, it, it they reflect a sort of a a back and forth between uh, the readers and editors or journalists and editors. Um, they, they may go through a committee and it promotes a form of discourse which, which, which is more considered and, and less crude. But of course, on, on social media, um, it, if, if you like, it's a, it's a free for all. And that, that, that's a big problem for, for liberal democracy. Um, uh, but particularly, there there have been um, a number of of, of issues, um, like for 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 example, like the, the transgender issue, where the 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 debate seems to be um, seems to be um, really led by by activists with, with, with quite extreme views on this. And it, it's very worrying, but because you you suspect that many of the positions on, on Twitter um, really aren't representative of, of what the wider population thinks. And as, as I was saying, it's a problem for liberal democracy because traditionally um, liberal democratic institutions allow um, considered um, consensual positions to be formed um, but but that doesn't really happen with social media where did this happen that we started to personalize everything and you address this in your book as well the idea that personal narrative seems to be taking over political discourse yeah i i think it's a major problem on on the left um it, the the embrace of of identity politics um really does alienate a lot of people electorally. Um, if you look at um, surveys on, on issues like the transgender issue, like um, Im- 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 immigration, um, what you see is that the, the, the values of, of, the, of the liberal left uh, really um, lie in some tension with, with the, the values of, of ordinary wor- workers. Um, I think that that what um, the the end if you you, you know as we were talking about earlier um, historically and well today as well the the left um, aims for redistribution um, but there, there are a number of problems um, yeah, that, that, that identity politics um, brings um, first of all 
there's the, the simply the, the issue of time, um, often identity politics issues uh, crowd out uh, it, it, issues like housing, as you were saying, or, or wages or, or pensions or unemployment benefits. There's, there's really less time um, to talk about those issues uh, in, in party manifestos, in, 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 in debate. I, I think at the moment that Keir Starmer's team are, are really trying to, um, to talk more about the traditional bread and butter redistributive issues, but, but they're really not uh, unable to do this because of the concerns of um, certain, certain activists. Um, so, so yes, it, it, it's a big problem. And as I was saying as well, the, the more perhaps fundamental problem um, is related to the, 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 the kind of people who, who the, 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 the left um, is, is attracting and who's, who it's repelling. Um, if you focus on identity politics, you, um, you, you, you attract... Um, more educated and, and, and more wealthier um, voters. But, but as I was saying earlier, um, such voters tend not to be so um, preoccupied with redistribution there. They tend to be more interested in, in, in things like tuition fees or, or, or trains or, or, or public sector pay rather than policies uh, like, like benefits with which allow um, redistribution to take place. So yes, it, it, it's a basic um, area of tension. Um, I, I'm really not convinced that you were a party can um, be redistributive and you know, they're, they're very strong supporters of identity politics. There's quite some tension there. And why is it important that we understand our political adversaries? A lot of people are especially on the left, are not convinced that it's a worthy cause because they've injected purity, moralism, and even a bit of a dash of arrogance in it where they believe. It reminds me of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation a little bit, but they believe that they hold the key, they hold the answers, and no one else's voice matters if they do not correspond to their given litmus test. Yeah, it, it's a big problem, um, the, the, this, this problem with, with purity. I, I think, as I was saying earlier, it, you can argue that, that it takes place on, on both sides, um, but because there are right-wingers as well who are very intolerant. There are left-wingers and liberals who are very tolerant. And what you see, actually, on in surveys, um, the survey evidence shows that... Um, that, 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 that very, very often um, the, the picture is quite mixed. But, but I agree with you among a certain uh, t- t- type of activist, um, really, really such um, act- activists are, are very intolerant. And as I was saying earlier, I think what, what they, they don't really understand or, or they don't want, want to appreciate is that Different political views are embedded. They are the the the, the, the product of different upbringings and, and 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 genes and material circumstances. And of course, you you do certainly don't have to agree with with everything um, one's opponent supports. Um, yeah, there, there, there are positions on the on the right and left I disagree fundamentally with, but I, I think that 
if, if we're going to move towards a more tolerant politics, what, what is needed is um, a recognition that different positions are, are rooted in, in these different circumstances. And I think as well, recognition that it's very difficult to change um, there's all sorts of studies which, which, which show that uh, people find it very difficult to change their beliefs, um, that they're very deep-rooted, um, that they reflect childhood and, and so on and so forth. So, in other words, calling a, 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 a Brexit or a, a Corbyn supporter stupid, um, it, it's highly likely to be counterproductive. You're not, going to, you're not going to convert anyone, you're just going to get people to dig their heels in. Um, so, yes, that's that's why I, I, I advocate uh, a greater empathy and understanding. I totally agree. I don't think it's helpful for the right to bang on about how useless identity politics is. It is, I believe, but I think it's more interesting to say why are people banging on about it and how might we address some of the issues without weighing too heavily on the more self-indulgent side of it. I have no problem yeah. with discussing. I mean, colonialism definitely has an imprint today. If we're looking at what happened to Nkrumah in Ghana, his assassination, uh, Lumumba as well, we have seen that colonialism has squashed anyone who pushes back. And the traces economically to the present day from colonialism are there. Uh, the current conflict in the West Bank, in the Gaza Strip, especially with Israel. Again, these have deep roots back to T.E. Lawrence and the British White Paper. So I think the left is not incorrect to point out these ills and to want that the right address this. I think at the same time, the right is very correct in saying we need to move the discussion forward as well. What, what should we be talking about if not ad nauseum the same issues and saying that Black Lives Matter cannot possibly be a get out of jail card. If, if that's all it takes to not be a racist, then everyone will, will say it just like self-identifying as a woman. <laughs> These are words. And I fear that we're living in an era where words tend to mean much more than actions. So by virtue of the title of your book, could it be inferred that all political beliefs are ultimately selfish? Is it possible to hold non-selfish political beliefs? And I don't mean, again, the kind of political belief that we say we don't like homelessness, but we're not going to help out the people to whom we rent our second or third house. Yeah, I think that, um, of, of course, um, all political beliefs, um, they, they do reflect our uh, personal circumstances, but also there's a, an articulation with, with the way in which the different worldviews were formed, uh, as, as we were saying earlier. Um, uh, the, the Marxist position or the conservative position are very deep roots, and th those positions reflect the preoccupations of, 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 previous, uh, of, of previous generations. Um, I, I think that that that, that yeah, um, what what you were saying also um, about um, about representing different interests what, what was very it was was very interesting. Uh, yes, um, I, I think the the the, um, the 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 in the last year there's obviously been a lot of, of debate about about race um, and, and of course many of the concerns are extremely important um, 
in a society um, like Britain, there's still lots of, of, of very, very serious racism and there's all sorts of discrimination. Um, but at the same time, um, I, I think that there's, there's a balance to be struck because we need a, a public policy um, yeah, that, that, that in, in my opinion, you, you know, um, is, is, is quite robust about um, liberal democratic rights um, uh, and, and quite robustly fen- defends liberal democracy. There, there were certain developments associated with with the Black Lives um, Matter um, movement that, that, that I found concerning for, from the, the, the point of view of a, of a, of a defense of, of liberal demo, democratic standards. Um, and I, I think there's, there's a problem also that, that um, lots of, of left liberals are, are quite aware of, of, of these challenges, but, but simply uh, won't speak up about it, which is very worrying, I think. We saw that in the UK, some tried to cut and paste Black Lives Matter to the UK situation, and it pretty much failed miserably. I think that we need to start understanding that national issues exist for a reason, and we can't just claim that we have the same issues by virtue of skin color. And another casualty in all of this has been class be it with an identitarian politics of gender, be it Black Lives Matter, we've seen very little to no discussion of class whatsoever. Zilch. How can we understand our political adversaries when the very subject no one is willing to discuss is class? Uh, Yes, yeah, uh, class. I, as, as we've said today, I, I think it, it, it's faded really from the, the, the radar of, of, of the liberal left um, over the, the, the last few decades. Um, and uh, now, no, of course, um, people on, on, on the left uh, would, 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 would claim that, that they are very interested in class. Um, but I, I think that the problem that they have is if you're, if you're interested in all of these different, um, different issues and, 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 and different causes, uh, they, they crowd out other concerns. And I think with class um it, it's been crowded out as you as you say by 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 the by the various other concerns and as i was saying earlier um the the, the very culturally liberal positions are also not very attractive to um to to, to the working classes which, which means that the left breaks its link with working classes we saw from new labor tony blair uh, a huge fragmentation within Labour in the UK. We've seen this with Clinton. I mean, you really can't compare the Democrats and Labour at that because the Democrats are much further to the right (laughs) than than Labour. That goes without saying. But let's talk about the way that parties envision themselves in terms of social politics and then fiscal politics, because that's a huge division where Tony Blair brought in the idea that you could still be a Labour member and have completely conservative fiscal policies and ideas. Neoliberalism to me is quite conservative. Then have social and open ideas about, let's say, same-sex marriage, adoption, homosexuals in the office place, acceptance there, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. At the same time, the Tories 
have made moves towards the same kind of acceptance. While they are more economic conservatives, they've made huge strides towards acceptance of homosexuality. There are many MPs who are themselves gay, uh, again, civil unions and marriages, all of that. What's changed then? Um, yeah, the, the, um, yeah, the, the, the polit political space has, has changed, absolutely. Um, I think that, that with the, um, with the, 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 the conservatives, um, as, as you were saying, they have, um, on the one hand, during the, the Cameron years, they became more liberal culturally, to an extent, not, um, not very liberal or, or radically liberal or anything, but kind of centrist on, on culture. Um, but but what what you've seen in terms of economics over the, the last few years is they've attracted um, the these poorer voters, and consequently the, there are demands um, from the poorer voters for things like leveling up and demands um, to 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 improve the various red wall constituencies. Uh, and I I think as I was saying earlier, I think that. Um, this combination of cultural conservatism and economic leftism uh, is is quite a natural one for for lower income, lower education voters, uh, and 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 particularly in an age of globalization, and consequently, um, I, I I think that um, yeah, you know the the Tories are on are quite promising ground there. It's quite a natural combination. I think for the next generation or so, this is the way that, 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 that politics is, 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 is going to take, take form. Um, and, and, and obviously, where, where does that leave the Labour Party? It leaves it um, as a, a culturally liberal party with somewhat um, left-wing economic views, um, but without that, that link with, with poorer voters. Although I guess, you know, you, you can overstate that, but because of course there, there, there are many poorer voters who still, vote, who still vote for the Labour Party, but as I was saying earlier, that, that link is weakening. Are there commonalities arising between the five groups that you look at in your book? Because I'm seeing a shift today, and it's again, it's not new. This has been developing since the 90s, definitely, between the rise of liberalism, new leftism, and social democracy, just those three alone. And the way in which the new left and the far right, in terms of Brexit, and I'm thinking Brexit, Lexit, have certain commonalities as well. Even if the ethos isn't the same, the end goal was about protecting jobs. It was about making sure the workers in Dagenham would be paid properly and that their work wouldn't be exported outward towards Eastern European states, for instance. Yeah, I, I think there's a general issue about, about the common interest because, because, of course, we have different... Um, values and we, we vote for different parties, but at the same time, uh, we, there's still only one world and there's a common set of resources. And of course, that has crucial implications, for example, on climate change. We've got one planet and we all need to work together because it's clearly in the, the, the common interest to find um, uh, you know, a reasonable climate change policy 
or so on um, in, 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 in the area of, of, of international relations. You know, you know, we need alliances to, to help us avoid war. Um, and on coronavirus, I'd argue as well that, um, of course, people have different attitudes towards it, but uh, it, it, it's one that we, we, we can move towards a sensible national policy. Um, on this issue, um, I guess the, the the very interesting thing is that different societies have got different capacities to, to arrive at consensus. Um, in Confucian societies, for example, um, it, it seems as if um, there, there's a, a more, more natural cultural basis for, for, for consensus. Um, in the West, we've had times um, when consensus has seemed easier in, in the 19, 1990s, for example, that was more of a consensual age because you'd had the fall of communism and it's as if there was a consensus on, on e e economics and indeed culture. Um, I guess, um, I, I think it, it really, at, at the moment, it, it's, it's a tremendous challenge to find areas of commonality between different opponents. Um, uh, but because, of course, um, people would say they want the same thing. They, they, they want good jobs and they, they want a prosperous country. But um, in, in, in many areas, the left and the right today really are, are severely divided. And, and I think that it, it's going to be, on, on the one hand, it, it's just going to be a case of waiting um, all of this division and conflict out because societies tend to um, they, they tend to ebb and flow in terms of this they, sometimes they they're they're very divided sometimes they're they're more consensual so it, it's just a matter of waiting I think um, uh, yeah but, but because to be honest um, in terms of of, of of the culture war, um, it, it's quite difficult to see areas of commonality, in, 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 I, I think. And how can the average person who is working even two jobs, maybe just one, understand politics today, given that, as you know, major media is feeding politics in still a very Cartesian way. Everything is divided up between sides and there's usually only two in your book you look at five different political positions but one could argue if gender's on a spectrum then politics is the stellar sphere so how can people understand political discourse if their only outlet for understanding it are major media websites newspapers that tend to dumb down political discourse even good ones they tend to dumb it down there's no nuance that sandwiched with social media use just a quick fact more than half of americans are getting their major media news from social media so then you go to this hermetically sealed bubble of everyone you haven't blocked and you're going to read basically preaching to the choir articles what do you say to people who have problems accessing this kind of first nuanced information because the media is not offering it up and then they're not exposing themselves to it as in pre-internet era remember have we desensitized ourselves to our ability to withstand differing opinions i think um 
you you hear a lot about this uh, concern. Um, I, I think, to be honest, um, there, there are there, there's quite a, a noisy minority who are very intolerant of of different opinions. I mean, we know who they are. They're the, <laughs> the, the people on, on Twitter who, who get the seem to get the most followers and the most likes. Um, but I, I think on the other hand, people still are very um, tolerant of, of different opinions. I was I look at my followers on Twitter sometimes and it's a tremendously diverse mix of people. Um, and, and I sometimes think to myself, you know, how on earth am I keeping all of these people? Because there, there are certain people who just have diametrically opposed um, positions to 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 other people, um, but but I think most people are quite happy uh, to listen to different views. There's quite still a lot of people out there, I think, who are who are interested in different views. Um, in terms of um, of of survey evidence, I I, I can't think of um, anything relevant off off the off the top of my head. But but I think that um, there are um, yeah, I'm. I'm not sure on on that actually. Whether there's been a general trend towards people becoming more intolerant. Certainly, I agree. On on Twitter, there's a there, there's quite a trend now um, among certain people. Uh, the the worrying thing um, is um, it 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 could it it seems to be among younger people. Um, it there there seems to be a trend among younger people not to like being exposed to, to views they disagree with. Um, you know, we, we know about cancer culture and, and so on and so forth. Um, and yeah, um, that, that, that's very worrying, but because in a liberal democracy, uh, you, you need people to be exposed to different ideas. Yes, I was impressed by your Twitter feed, to be honest. You have the kindest Twitter followers. Oh, thank you. Uh-huh. I agree with you that not everyone's given up the fight. And I also agree what you said earlier that I think Twitter does have, attract a certain temperament overall, not always. I use it to do my work. I, I get a lot of stories from Twitter because that's the temperature taking pool of the day. I'm looking forward to that being the supermarket or the public square in real life. But mm. we have moved away from these in real life debates over lockdown. So if there was ever a moment that I sympathize with people's inability to debate, it's this past year and some months, because we have been literally sealed up in our homes with either Netflix, uh, sorting socks or having an argument with someone on Twitter about something, let's say, is Pluto a planet or not? And if it's not mm -hmm. a planet, I'm gonna write your employer and report you. <laughs> yeah. Going back to my, one of my original questions was about that person who makes all the right words come out of their mouth, but their actions don't reflect that. And one thing I've learned from talking with people on the right is this, Thomas. And this yeah. has just been, you know, the last year over lockdown, I've been having more of these discussions. Not that I didn't talk to people on the right before, but I have noticed that a lot of people on the right are maligned as being not just Nazi party members and, and flagrant homophobes and racists. I've talked to many who are themselves not white, not heterosexual. 
my worry is both where have these discussions come from and why are they happening in such a volatile way? And then why is there so much narcissism from the left and this presupposition that everyone on the right is necessarily evil? Because I don't think these bad faith arguments are going to get us anywhere. Hence, sitting down and talking with people over a sandwich, over a tea, might reveal for many of the new left and the hard left might reveal that there is humanity to be found amongst Tories. There's humanity to be found amongst Republicans. Or is that asking too much? I think, yeah, what, what you touch on there, um, and it, it's become a particular problem during lockdown, actually, um, is is the problem of, of stratification. Um, in, increasingly in today's society, we're, we're not really exposed um, to people who do, who disagree with us. You, you know, we, we, um, we if, for example, if you you work um, well, what one's um, job normally involves working with people with similar backgrounds and similar incomes and similar educational pro, profiles, and it means. Um, that at work, uh, whether you're in a, a university or or, or in a, a factory, it means you don't really you don't tend to encounter uh, very different positions on, on an attitude like Brexit. And I, I think that's part of the the, the problem with, with an issue like Brexit because society is stratified. It's very easy for um, people uh, really to construct this kind of devil out out of the opponent, to think of of Remainers as as, as snobs who just just want to, um, who just just want to go on holiday to to, to Spain and to think of of Brexiters as as just stupid. And and of course, they are just stereotypes and they're not not really helpful at all. Uh, But I think it reflects stratification. Um, The the, the fact that um, I think on on certain um, areas, Western societies have become more stratified. It's obviously, it's a big problem. And I think that that in in reality, Although I, I voted Remain, I continue to think it would have been a better idea to have stayed in the European Union. Um, I, I do think that, you know, there, there are certain things that have happened that have vindicated the Brexiters. Um, you know, the, the economy, for example, there hasn't been the economic crash that that, that Remainers um that, that, that Remain is predicted. And I think the problem really is, um, is that, People, because they're so tribal, because people have a the, the label of either remain or or, or leap put on them, they they're unable to think in in nuanced categories and say, okay, well, um, I may think that on the whole Brexit is bad, but but there are certain opportunities here, or this hasn't worked out as well as badly as I thought it would. Um, it and that 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 really reflects the the you know the the how how tri- how tribal we the, 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 we we've become and of course Brexit um, really brought to um, the, the the surface those divisions and, and and really made them worse I think.